Ladies and gentlemen, please open your Bibles in the book of Proverbs. Just open your your Bibles, please, in Proverbs. We will be in Proverbs 22. In Proverbs 22, and today on Father's Day, I want specifically to address and try to encourage, if I can, myself with the truth of God's Word and all the dads and all the parents and grandparents and those who are not bound by people by blood or by law but serve a fathering, mentoring role in an increasingly lonely and fractured society with families separated from each other and broken apart, the role of those who are not actual blood family or adopted or related in any legal way or biological way is increasingly important. So if you have people in your lives, younger people who look to you as a fatherly figure, this proverb that we're going to explore has a great deal to teach you and a great deal of wisdom to impart to them. The proverb we're going to explore has given boundless hope and also confused and racked with guilt many, many people. To understand this very well-known proverb, you have to understand how proverbs work. And we've studied proverbs before. We've had series in proverbs for years in our church because one of my favorite recommendations to you, in addition to whatever else you read of the Bible, read the chapter of proverbs that corresponds to the day of the month. So today is June 18th. Today you would read and ponder Proverbs 18. Let me remind you, though I've done so before, how proverbs actually work. Number one, the most important thing to know about proverbs, perhaps, is this. Proverbs are concentrated truth about life. They begin with the ironclad truth in the first chapter, in the seventh verse, that to know the Lord and to revere the Lord is the beginning of knowledge that it is only the part of fools to despise instruction. And what Proverbs wants to do is to teach you who God is and how the life He made works one step at a time in, number one, concentrated truth. Truth concentrate, that forces you to ponder it. Number two, Proverbs teach discernment as well as they require it. In other words, if you take your time and read Proverbs slowly and ask yourself, what does this mean? How might this show up in life? Where have I seen examples of this truth in life? All of that requires discernment, and that's exactly how you're going to learn it. Proverbs requires you to have at least some wisdom to understand it, and once you understand it, you grow wiser still. Growing in wisdom is something like growing in strength. If you want to grow stronger, you have to have at least a little bit of strength to get started. If you have no strength whatsoever, weight training won't work for you. But if you have just a little bit of strength, imagine a person who through old age or injury has been physically devastated and can barely stand. Their arms don't really resemble human, healthy human limbs anymore. They're like dried twigs hanging nearly useless by the body, but there's just a little bit of strength left in that body. And that person begins wanting to rebuild their strength and regain their life and their health. That person begins weight training with a one-pound dumbbell. I don't know if you've ever seen little tiny dumbbells like that. They look kind of silly. They look like toys. 
But if that's all you can lift, that's all you can lift. And if a person is willing to try and to train with one pound, they'll discover that two weeks later they're ready to pick up a two and a half pound dumbbell and already their strength has more than doubled. A month after that, they're lifting five pounds. A month after that, they're training the same as everybody else. And these are the stories that delight the news channels. They'll take someone whose life has been wrecked, who decided to rebuild themselves, and someone who could barely walk over years of training and paying careful attention to their strength and health and their nutrition. That person who once could barely walk finishes the Ironman in Hawaii. And everybody marvels at the development from a near invalid to a champion. That's how Proverbs works. It forces you to slow down and ask yourself, what does this mean? And from this single concentrated truth, how can I apply in various ways this single thing that I'm told? Here's the classic example I've shared with you before. Indulge the example again because it's so helpful. It's in Proverbs on purpose. Proverbs 26, verse 4 says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Have you ever argued with a fool and ended up being more of a fool than they were? That's what this proverb is warning you about. There are foolish people in the world, and if you get started with them, you talk back to their foolishness. Before you know it, you'll be the bigger fool in the room. Now, Proverbs 26, verse 5, the very next verse says this. Read it with me. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Now, I have a Bible question for you. Are those two verses contradictory? Hmm. Everybody's afraid to say that they are. Same thing happened in the first service. Folks, relax. It's God's Word. It can take any test you give it, any question you ask of it. The answer is actually really straightforward. Yes, those verses are contradictory. They give you the opposite advice consecutively. First it says, don't answer a fool according to his folly. You'll be like him. The very next verse says, answer a fool according to his folly or he'll be worse than he already is. He'll be a fool who thinks he's actually wise. Why are these two contradictory pieces of advice given? Because it's teaching you discernment. Those two verses are strategically, purposely set down in Scripture side by side to invite the wise reader to say, hmm, I routinely deal with a fool at work. What kind of situation is this? Is this a situation where wisdom would require me to speak up? Or is this the kind of situation and the kind of fool that would require me wisely to be quiet? The answer always in this matter is, it depends. There are different occasions, there are different situations, and there are different kinds of people acting foolishly. You need wisdom and discernment to make use of wisdom and discernment. Thirdly, and very important for the purposes of our study, Proverbs are usually trustworthy principles, not absolute promises. Now, every word in that sentence is carefully chosen, so let me slow down and repeat it to you. Proverbs are usually trustworthy principles, not absolute promises. Not always. Some Proverbs speak about the character and the nature of God. 
Some Proverbs, for instance, speak very, with very vivid language about things that God hates. You can take that to the bank. That will never change because God himself doesn't change. But most of the Proverbs, not all of them, make observations about life as God made it and life the way sin has ruined it that you can take as a trustworthy, reliable guide but is not true in every case and is not making to you an absolute promise. Let me give you an example. Proverbs 10 verse 4 says, Idle hands make one poor, but diligent hands bring riches. Now, let's, let's practice a little bit. Second service, cool group of people. We can slow down a little bit and practice. <laughs> See if you can just rephrase that in your own words. That's one way that you know you've discerned the wisdom if you can tell somebody in your own words what that means. Try it just to yourself. You don't have to talk to your neighbor. Don't make it awkward. Some people don't like that, okay? Don't bother the introverts, okay? It basically says, if you're lazy, you'll be poor, but if you work hard, you'll be rich. Money will come in if you work hard. If you're very lazy, poverty is in your future. Agreed? Okay. Not always. Because I went to school in Mexico where I grew up. I was required by law, by local law, to go to private school. And most of the students in my school were ordinary people, but a few of them were extraordinarily rich. They were generationally wealthy. They were three-generation wealthy. Their grandfathers had literally helped settle the country, pioneered industries. One of my classmates, his grandfather at one time, two generations earlier, had owned much of the state of Chihuahua. He had one of those names. Their fathers had worked beside their grandfathers and come alongside in their early 20s before everything was done and worked hard. They weren't the pioneers and the, the trailblazers that the first generation was, but the second generation earned it just about as much. And they understood the rise from nothing to riches. By the time we got to my classmates, the third generation of wealth, guess what kind of kids most of them were? Worthless. Well, no one is worthless, but they were actually useless. They didn't know anything. They didn't do anything. They didn't care about grades. They were what I called bodyguard rich. It literally didn't matter if they graduated from school or not. It didn't matter if they learned to trade. Their families had so much money that they literally couldn't exhaust it in their lifetimes, though they tried. So there are some cases where are what we call in this country the idle rich and their hands are idle, but they're never going to be poor. And there are some people who work hard all of their lives, and because of oppressive conditions, they never really, truly get rich. But you can take it to the bank. Even the idle wealthy, had they worked, would have more. And if you want to make certain to have as little as you can, just fold your hands and never do anything ever again. That is a near certain guarantee of poverty. That's what Proverbs is warning you about and enticing you with. It's an invitation to work hard and enjoy the fruit of your labor. 
Now, why am I telling you all this? Well, by now you've seen it or you've guessed. We're examining today the most famous proverb of parenting in the Bible, some that people have come to depend upon, and I'm explaining it to you because some parents have been heartbroken and wondered what went wrong, what they did wrong, or maybe wondered if God has failed to keep His word because Proverbs 22, verse 6 says this. Read it with me, please. Train up a child in the way he should go, even when he is old, he will not depart from it. A familiar proverb? Yes. And it gives us a lot of hope, and it gives us a lot of courage, and it gives us a lot of direction. Now, we are reading an English translation of an ancient Hebrew proverb. And those of you who speak two languages, as I do, know that translators and interpreters have to make choices to the best of their ability to convey what the original speaker or writer is trying to communicate to people. If you had me and another native Spanish speaker stand up here and translate an English sermon, you would all hear the same sermon, but you would hear different nuances, different points of emphasis, just because of the specific words that each of us chose. For instance, anger is one word, wrath is another. Which sounds heavier to you? Wrath. And Hebrew is the kind of language, and especially in the book of Proverbs, that has very sparse, lean language. It doesn't explain everything because that is exactly part of the magic. It gives you concentrated truth about life and it invites you through the hiddenness without explaining everything in every instance. It invites you to sit down, slow down a little bit, and ponder all the different ways that this truth could be true and all the ways that it applies. There's three ways upon study and upon reflection that I think Proverbs invites the parent who would like to raise their children, their grandchildren, the young people they're mentoring in the way of God. There's three ways that Proverbs teaches wisdom and both incentivizes and warns you about outcomes. The first is this. By all means, train your children in the right way. Teach your kids to walk with God. Parenting is a sacred trust, and it's taught across the whole Bible. Train up a child in the way he should go, the translator supplied. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Obviously, the central truth, the way this proverb was trans, the reason the proverb was translated the way it was, is that the Bible all across Scripture teaches that there is a right way to raise your kids, that not everything is up for grabs, that there are, there is right and wrong, there are boundaries, and within the road of wisdom, there may be lanes in the road, but there is a way through life that God Himself has given. If you get off the road, you'll be wrecked. That, inter that translation, that teaching that you are to teach kids to walk with God is the obvious and most, the most obvious way to understand it, and I'd like you to see that it fits the immediate context. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, we're told, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Modern-day translators of the Hebrew Bible 
invariably have to think of what it says thousands of years later in the New Testament. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Instead, positive instruction, there's a don't and there's a do. Do not provoke your children to anger. Instead, bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. And that single sentence is rich with meaning. It tells you that the great hazard of parenting is discouraging your children, annoying them, making them feel like they can never get it right, like they can never please you or God. There's a lot to this, and that's a separate sermon for another time, but the single most important and fatal way that I see Christian parents provoking their children to anger is parents are not willing to live the Christ that they teach to their children. Hypocrisy. You become a hypocrite and you become inconsistent. You become moody with your Christianity that your faith and your obedience to God depends on your mood, what you're feeling like. You will provoke that child to anger, to discouragement, to annoyance. They'll make the quiet decision that as soon as it's up to them, not only will they be out of your home, they'll be out of God's church. Take it to the bank. You don't want to provoke your children to anger. Instead, you want to bring them up, two different words, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Discipline speaks to a negative side of parenting, a negative side of direction, and every training, every teaching has do's and don'ts. Discipline speaks to correction, where the child whose heart is inclined to go his own way is disciplined, is corrected, is taught, is instructed to get back on the right path. Proverbs 22, verse 6, and Ephesians 6, 4, hold hands, join heart to heart across the centuries by telling you that there is a path that God has for your children. And Proverbs 22, verse 6, if you look at the rest of the chapter, really fits the immediate context very well. Proverbs 22, verse 3 says, the prudent sees danger and hides himself. But the simple go on, and what happens? Suffer for it. Can you see that word picture? Two men are walking along the road. There's a bear in the path. The first one says, no problem. He looks tame. He's under the influence of too many Disney movies with too many talking bears. The bear looks friendly. And the second one says, I don't think so. I'm ducking into this little cave right over here. And he pokes his head out just in time to see his friend torn in about five pieces by the bear, who turns out was not friendly at all. That's the sort of image that Proverbs is trying to invite. Something I've said to my sons for years is, buddy, you don't have to make all the mistakes yourself. You can learn from mine. When I was their age, because I'm obviously many years ahead of my sons at every season of life they've been in. I found many of the landmines by stepping on them. No, no, don't talk to teachers that way. Don't say that to the police. No, no, don't talk to your boss that way. No, that is not going, you're not going to like the way that turns out. The prudent sees danger and hides himself. The simple go on and suffer for it. Verse 4 shows you a positive, that path that the prudent is on, avoiding danger, now here's some positivity. The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life.
Son, if you'll humble yourself and walk with God, God, who is more generous than you can imagine, will give you riches. He'll honor you. He'll extend your life. That's the good life. That's the good way. Look at the very next verse. Thorns and snares are in the way of the crooked. Whoever guards his soul will keep far from them. I want you to see a little bit the literary artistry of the Bible. See the word way in verse 5? It connects with way in verse 6. I need you to look at your Bible so that you can see that. It's very intentional. Thorns and snares are in the way of the crooked. Whoever guards his soul will keep far from them. That's the wise person again avoiding danger. There is a way that leads away from thorns and from traps. Now, parents, here's your responsibility. Because the way ahead can be dangerous and your children need to avoid it, because there is a path that God will reward with riches and honor and life, because there is a path that will ensnare them and hurt them, that they need to avoid, verse 6, train up a child in the way he should go, even when he is old, he will not depart from it. So by all means, parents, train your children Teach your children by word and example to walk with the Lord. But that's not the only way the proverb can be understood. That's the first. That is certainly the best. But that is not all that the proverb, I believe, intends to convey. Here's the second. It's not only the moral path. It's the path of aptitude. It's not just the right way that is right for every person. It's a specific way through life that belongs to them. This is not the, uh, speaking about the right way. It's the way that they were made for. Within the path of the righteousness of God, your children will want to walk with Him in various interests, in various vocations, with all kinds of hobbies and all kinds of things, some that delight them, some that repel them. That's okay, the parental task here, according to that understanding of the proverb, is to teach your children to discover their aptitude. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 makes this exciting announcement that believers were saved by the grace of God to walk in the good works that the Father prepared beforehand for them. God has good works for your children to do. What will they be? That's part of the joy of growing up, and that's part of the joy of parenting to help them discover what they were made for. I've talked enough about my sons. I won't do it again today, but if you know them, you know that they are dramatically different in their vocations. They literally couldn't be any farther apart in the honorable way they've each chosen to make their mark as adults and to begin to earn their living. I didn't do that. God did that. The joy of parenting them was to discover that that was in each of them. I couldn't do either one of my son's jobs. Not for a moment. There's nothing that I could do in the work of the older boy and nothing I could do in the work of the younger boy. They were made for that. They started diverting at a very early age. Those of you who have more than one kid, have you noticed they're different? Sometimes strikingly so, dramatically so. And what do parents often want to do? Foolishly, they decide what path the child must walk 
has nothing to do with righteousness, nothing to do with godliness. It's all about parental ambition, and they make a very narrow road that curiously looks just like what dad wanted to do, or curiously looks exactly like what mom does, and they put them on that path and try to drag them through it. This is most frequently seen in youth sports. And you got the nitwit of a father who was and never was as an athlete, yelling and screaming and bullying his kid and making it uncomfortable for everyone because it's very, very obvious the child barely cares, but dad's living his dreams, trying to revive his old ambitions that died when he was 12 or 13 years old because that's as far as he was going to go. That's, an ab- that's, a, that's a dereliction of parenting. You can read it in this understanding of the proverb. You can read it in English and understand it just by changing the emphasis in the word you put on the English translation. First, first way, the moral way, the right way. Train up a child in the way he should go. That's your moral responsibility, to bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Now, because it's Proverbs and it invites many applications, one truth with many applications, read it this way for the aptitude understanding. Train up a child in the way he should go. And if that's his path and it's an honorable path and it's a good way to make a living and it will be of service to other people, then encourage them. To put it very, very practically, if your child is into photography, guess what? you need to be buying cameras. If your child's into art, you need to be buying supplies and canvas. Whatever their aptitudes and their interests are, it very well may be that your heavenly Father who made all things and delights in all sorts of different human expressions is calling them into something that you don't understand and that you could never do. That's the second way. The third way is this. There is a wrong way, and this is the hardest way to understand the proverb because our English translation has made it so emphatic that there is a right way for children to walk, and we should train them to find it so that we will, we will we should train them to walk in it so that we will find them in many, many years down the road. They'll still be on the path. This is a little more subtle. Bear with me, and I hope I can understand, explain this well, away, uh, well enough. For many, many years, ancient and contemporary scholars have detected not a positive encouragement, but a warning in Proverbs that warns not only of, that not only promises the right way, but warns of the wrong way that the previous verses have just been mentioned. And the idea of the warning is this, it's a warning for parents, if you leave your kids to do their own thing, they'll go astray. If you don't intervene when they are young people and direct their path, if you just set them out and forget about them, if you just get them started and then neglect them, they'll always go after the inclination of their heart, which by necessity, due to their age and inexperience, will incline toward foolishness, and they'll be messed up. You can see that in a different translation, the Christian Standard Bible. Notice it's just a little bit different, and this is just a different and proper way to understand the Hebrew the Old Testament was written in. Start a youth out on his way. Even when he grows old, he will not depart from it. Did you notice there's no should there? 
It's a little more generic. You just get him started, he'll keep going. There's not only inertia in the physical world, there's inertia in the spiritual world as well. You let them go or you start them out on the wrong path, they'll never get off it. A Mexican proverb says it like this, a tree that grows crooked will never ever be straight. If a tree is crooked from the beginning, you'll never, you have no chance of ever straightening it out. This is a warning about children left to their own about children who, in, by way of compassionate, gentle parenting, are left to decide everything about life. And this understanding of the proverb, I don't think is the primary understanding, I don't think it's the main application, but it's well worth considering in the 21st century because we live in an age where parents, for all kinds of cultural reasons and personal fears, are very inclined to say regarding children and their walk with God, we're going to let him make his own choices. Oh, we're just letting them grow up and then they're going to decide. Do you take that view when it comes to the dentist? We're just letting him eat food and if he feels like brushing before he goes to bed, that's fine. We just believe children should find their own way. You're going to have a kid with no teeth is what's going to happen if you let kids choose their own way. Because parents are increasingly told that the structure of the family has to be so flat that nobody's in charge and nobody leads, there's an increasing temptation in our age to leave children entirely on their own. But if you read this as a proverb, it fits. If you read this rather as a warning, it fits a lot of proverbs about this same idea. Proverbs 22, verse 15. Read this verse with me, please. Proverbs 22:15 says, Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Boy, did my mother love this verse. <laughs> I see that there's still a lot of foolishness bound up in your little heart. Here's what happens now. When I was 18 years old, I made the terrible mistake of telling my father, who very gently asked me to come in after I was out way too late. I decided if I was parked outside the house with one of my stupid friends, that would count as making curfew, because I can see the house. And my dad very politely came in, came out, and very politely, he didn't embarrass me, he's a wise man, said, buddy, it's late, your mother and I woke up, when you pulled up, we can't really get back to sleep, we just want to know that you're safely home. Would you mind coming in in just a minute? Wrap this up and come inside. I said, I'll come in when I'm ready. I know. I know. I know. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. My dad was very cool. He exhibited a lot of self-control. He just looked at me meaningfully and walked away. I went inside and he was waiting. And he said, that was big talk. You want to talk some more? No, sir. Like to apologize? Said, very well. Sleep fast. You're up with that sunrise. That morning, I washed and waxed and detailed five cars. And our house, unfortunately, was on the loop where our high school kid, our high, my high school classmates loved to drive by. It was just a parade of classmates all day laughing and saying, keep talking, you know, watch what happens. There was discipline, there was instruction, there was a rod of discipline 
called hard labor, about 14 hours of work that day, and I never did that again because the rod of discipline drove that particular foolishness far out of my heart. Proverbs 15 verse 5 says, a fool despises his father's instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is prudent. It's fools who hate what their dad has to say. People who are already wise heed correction and grow wiser still. Proverbs 29 verse 17 says, discipline your son and he will give you rest. He will give delight to your heart. Hang on to this proverb. By God's grace, as far as I know, this is the season of life my wife and I are in. We're resting in the lives of our children. They're bringing delight to our heart. If you want to enjoy your kids, discipline them. You want to enjoy your kids, teach them. That's a daily drip, drip, drip of instruction, correction, encouragement, and prayer that will keep your kids' feet on the path, and many years from now, you will enjoy them more than you can imagine. Our parenting journey is not yet over, but I can tell you, if you will choose the daily pain of correction and instruction, you can enjoy, you can enjoy, you can enjoy life with your kids rather than endure the agony of neglecting them and leaving them to their own devices. What wisdom can we glean for the good of our children if we put all this together from the Proverbs? Number one, there is a path that God has set for our kids and we should do all that we can to teach it to them. We're not responsible for outcomes, but we are responsible for faithfully parenting the children that God has placed in our lives. We should wear ourselves out and leave nothing in our hands that we could have given to our children to teach them to follow the Lord. Number two, each child must be parented with individualized love and support and correction. The rebuke given to one child that might motivate them and fire them up to do it better and right the second time may break the heart of his brother. You have to understand each child as a treasure from God and steward them accordingly, loving them, supporting them, and correcting them in a way that is helpful to them to walk with the Lord. And finally, there is no foolproof formula to raise up God's children. But you can take this as a promise, leaving them to their own desires always invites disaster. My prayer for you and all the generations of this church, we're in a very unique time of history. We have four generations in the church at once. And my prayer is that God will bless our efforts to raise up a generation that loves and serves Him better than we have. This generation of children that have, are growing up faced unprecedented pressures and temptations. They're more criticized, perhaps, than any generation ever has been. We have to be better and believe better in the grace of God that they can be better disciples for Jesus than you and I have dared to be. Would you pray with me, please? Can I ask you to think of the kids that God has placed in your life, that you mentor, that you father, that you grandparent, that you mother, and pray for them? Can I also invite you to rededicate yourself in prayer to the Lord? To use the years you have 
to warn, to teach, to love, to encourage, to bless, to help, to give, to support. All the holy, sacred, hard things that parenting involves.